good morning. I wasn't ready for that to end. I, I was like, they're finishing the song, but I can't probably get up there. Somebody expects me to say some stuff. Um, I do appreciate the worship team, uh, as always. Um, all of our volunteers, those in children's ministry, those in coffee ministry, uh, those who greet people at the doors, uh, shake hands, and, and love people well here. And that goes for all of you. Uh, you're so appreciated. Uh, it's my privilege. Uh, I know that sounds cheap. Um, and it can, words are cheap, right? But um, we were celebrating this morning in our life group that uh, not every church has a sort of love for those that come through this door, these doors, uh, as you all do. And it doesn't matter the way you're dressed, doesn't matter how long your hair is. Tim's glad for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> both both Tim's um, but really it, it is a, a privilege you make it easy to come here every Sunday and, and, and want to lead this group and, and uh, uh, so you're loved uh, you are appreciated uh, all of you who do anything you do uh, even if it's just a, a smile and a handshake thank you worthy is your name I get chills when, when we sing those words worthy is your name Not starting off great. If the goal is to not cry every week, I'm not starting off real good. But um, you know, Jesus, uh, his his name is worthy of being praised. Um, not only because, but it's it, it makes it easier for us that he didn't come here to be served, but to serve us. And if you ever had a leader that that was their mindset, a job that you worked, a, a place you were employed. Where you knew that your boss was in charge, but, but it was all about you. All about elevating you. All about making you better. All about helping you. Servant leadership in Jesus, he defined that. That's, that's why we have a thing called servant leadership, because Jesus showed us how. And that's a king worth serving. That's a king worth singing his praises over and over again. The worthy is indeed his name. Uh, we're back in our Revelation study Hindsight is 2020. Again, part of our 2020 vision, uh, our pursuit of 2020 vision this year for Ignite Christian Church is our first series. Hindsight is 2020. If you, uh, if you're observant, you've noticed I have seven little churches, and I've circled each one each week. We are now at the halfway point. You could say we're halfway there. You and Bon Jovi could say that we're halfway there. I won't sing that for you. Sometimes I am up here living on a prayer, though, so you, you get it. Where's the drums? Where's the... I know. Go home. But we're halfway there. Um, we've been through a few churches now. Ephesus was that church that was the apathetic church. They were doing a whole bunch good. They were checking all the boxes. They were doing all the right things, at the end of which we said, what could Jesus possibly say about this church, that they're doing anything wrong? And there, and there it was, plain as day. He says, look, you're doing all this stuff, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten love for God, and thus you've forgotten love for other people. And that is why we are here, that is why we're doing this. Not to be religious, I don't want any part of that. I don't have time for that. We're here to love God and love each other. That's the two great commandments that he's given us. 
And Ephesus, while they were doing all these good things, they forgot the great thing. And we want to avoid this. We're talking about taking, uh, emulating all the good that we see from these churches uh, and copying that. We want to copy the good things that we see in these churches, but we also be mindful that not everything they did was good. Uh, and so some of their experiences, we can say, oh, we can learn from that experience. Again, I'll say this every week, but do I need to, do, do, do I personally need to fall in the hole to learn from the fact that somebody fell in the hole? I can see it happening. I'm watching it happen. I, I take the same route along the same path with the same ruts and I fall in the same hole. And no, but I can look at this, these early churches and say, uh, this is what they dealt with. And these are, these are the instructive words that the risen Christ, the Messiah, had uh, for these people. And they're very real for us today, too. And so get back to your first love. Don't be the apathetic church. As Smyrna was the next one. It was the suffering church. And there was nothing of any condemnation. There, there was no negative word to say to Smyrna, except, hey, look, you're getting beat up. And Jesus, the risen Christ, says, hey, I see you. I know your sufferings. I know that it feels as though you're impoverished. Because you don't have a whole lot of what this world says is, is, is good to have. If we're, if we're using the scales that the world uses, you have nothing. And on top of that, you're getting beat up, and what you do have is being taken from you. And who here hasn't felt that way at times? The world is beating you up and taking what little that you had left. And that's the church at Smyrna. Yet the risen Christ says this. He announces himself as the risen Christ and he says, look, hang on. I want you to be faithful even further still. Faithful even to the point of death. That's the church of Smyrna. Sometimes the, the word of, uh, the word of uh, challenge to us is not a bright and cheery one. But it's one that we need to hear anyway. We had Smyrna, the suffering church. And we had Pergamum last week, the compromising church. We, the title of the message is a church flirting with compromise. Uh, they were they were a church entertaining some some people outside of the church itself, advocating some things that did not belong inside the church, and they were winning some people over. Uh, and so there, there's this minority group that's beginning to flirt with this idea, these secular ideas, these uh, otherworldly ideas, these idolatrous ideas, and they're beginning to be led astray. And I cautioned you: we won't let any of that in these doors. We don't have time for that. I've said it so many times, this is a big book. And this is what I know. That God revealed his word to us. And this is the surest thing that we have. Uh, And so I'm going to be teaching out of this book. And if you have extra stuff that you're really excited about, that may be well and good for you, but it's not coming in here. We're not flirting with compromise. That was a church at Pergamum. This next church, Thyatira. The title of the message today is A Church Comfortably Compromised. If you think about the position that Pergamum was in, take another couple steps. And now we're dealing with a church that is not just compromised, but they're comfortably so. They've welcomed it in the front doors. They've invited people to be in positions of leadership to bring that nonsense inside the church and proliferate it inside the church. Before we get into the text, and we'll get there in a moment, let's open a word of prayer. Lord and Father, we, first of all, how worthy is your name? Worthy is your name. Lord, might you be exalted today. As you were in song, so also in message, so also in lessons, in the children's ministry, 
Might you be exalted. Might your name be lifted high where it belongs. And Lord, we are, we are awaiting a word from you. A word from the risen Christ as revealed to the Apostle John in this vision. And Lord, we don't want to miss any of the details. We don't want to miss any of the oomph, any of the power behind it. And so Lord, I'm asking you to help me get out of the way. Unleash your word on the people that came here to hear it. Or might we recognize that we are tools in the, in the hands of the potter. To be used how he sees fit. Might you use us now however you see fit. Lord, I ask you to bring this message to open ears and fertile hearts. That, Lord, whatever each person is in need of this morning, this message would represent. You know that's an impossibility. I know that's an impossibility for one message and one person, except that you are here with us. And so we're asking your spirit, Lord, to be in power at this place. Communicate, Lord, supernaturally that between my lips and their ears, Lord, something beautiful might take place. Something challenging might take place. Something convicting might take place. Something beneficial might take place. Lord, that their, their time here would not be in vain. We're trusting you for that. We thank you in advance for it. Be high and lifted up. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have a map for you. Same map you're used to. So we're working kind of clockwise. If your clock is sort of smashed and um, starts in Ephesus, we're going up to Smyrna, Pergamum, and now we're in uh, Thyatira. So forgive me, Lord. Maybe I shouldn't do it. I need Roe up here to do it for me. You know the Oak Ridge Boys song, Elvira? Thyatira. Okay, that was awful. Even I know that. Uh, forgive me. It wasn't in my notes. I actually confessed this morning I was going to do it, and then I wasn't going to do it, and then here I am, I did it. So, doors are locked, you can't go anywhere. Uh, but we're in Thyatira, and that is not an Oak Ridge Boys song. Um, it's uh, 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. Uh, Thyatira is a pretty unimportant place. It lacked the accessibility of Ephesus, so no trade routes, no uh, nothing to uh, lend itself to them as far as trade goes. It lacked the beauty of Smyrna. It lacked the historical and cultural significance of Pergamum being the capital of Asia Minor. It lacked all those things. It's the least known. It's the least written about. Nobody cared about Thyatira, and to this day, it had the least impact on the future of the church. So then why, you might ask, is it the longest letter? And actually, I think that it has the most to tell us in the modern Western church of any of the letters. It might be more relevant to, to the church in our day, in our age, in this time and place than any of the other letters. So I hope, I hope that, uh, that you get something from it. So it's the longest letter of the least important church. Um, but again, most uh, relevant perhaps to us today. It was known for this one thing. It was, it was still uh, noted for its commerce. Uh, largely because not, not trade routes, and uh, not ease of trade, but because of these trade guilds, uh, as they call them. They're like trade unions. 
And these trade unions or trade guilds were uh, kind of a center for social, commercial, and religious life. It's kind of a melting pot of all those uh, things. And so these guilds were very important. You had to be uh, just kind of of like unions today. You're kind of told, if you're in a union, you're kind of told, you should probably vote this way. And, And yeah, you're free not to, but you're not. You should probably vote this way. And these, these guilds were the same way. They had a lot, of, uh, a lot of influence over the way people thought, the way people acted, the way that people uh, carried uh, themselves. And uh, you had to go along to get along. But if you weren't willing to, as we say in our modern parlance, if you're not willing to play the game, who's been told that at work? You've got to learn to play the game. I, I got my PhD in playing the game. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I've never been good at playing the game. And... Uh, I was told in the army, they said, hey, Sergeant Whittem, you, you, get, you start playing the game or you're never going to see E6. And I said, well, I'm going to be the best E5 you ever saw then. <laughs> and I probably wasn't that, but I never did see E6. So uh, playing the game was not my, my, not my thing, not my cup of tea. Uh, but these guilds were a mixed bag of commercial, social, religious life. It was an all or nothing proposition. You're in or you're out. You're one of us, you're not one of us. You're going along or you're not going along. And that had everything to do with how well you could live your life, how peaceably you could live your life, how comfortably you could live your life, whether you were in or you were out. And it sets up the relevance for one of the subjects of today's text, a woman by the name of Jezebel and the influence that she had on the church. Interesting to note, not many people, you're looking for a good Bible name, don't recommend Jezebel. Probably not the top 50. Uh, but, uh, and you'll see why, if you're not familiar with her uh, from the Old Testament or the New, you will see why before the day uh, is through. But again, it sets up our relevance here. Uh, they, like, like Pergamum, they were flirting with compromise. Uh, but now, instead of flirting with compromise from those outside the walls, they're now flirting with compromise inside. They're, they're inviting that in through the front door to say, hey, uh, camp out here. In fact, why don't you be one of our teachers? Why don't you be one of our vocal leaders of the church? And so the the error is more egregious, the error is more dangerous. Like I said, it's perhaps reflective of the modern Western church. I've never seen a time where, where there was more influence to say, Hey church, hey church, I get that you have these beliefs. I get you I get that you hold them dearly. I'm just gonna say they're a bit archaic, they're a bit outdated, they're a bit outmoded, and you are being outvoted. We don't want what you have to offer anymore, ethically. Socially, religiously, we are out on all of that. Do you feel that way? The world is telling you we don't want what you have to offer. Oh, with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. We're not called to compromise, we are called to stand tall. Not because we're so strong. Again, we have a big God behind us, got our back. And we're not worried. Our hands aren't shaken. Because our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in God Almighty and His risen, risen Son. We expect opposition from outside the church, don't we? James says the enmity or friendship of the world is enmity with God or uh, being at odds with God. If you choose to be hand in hand with the world, it's going to mean that you're not hand in hand with God and vice versa. Now, who hasn't experienced your, your commitment to Jesus means you're not as welcome at events. You're not in on all the gossip. You don't, you're not in the know because you're not in the inner circle. I've, who hasn't gotten the stiff arm as a friend? You can come this close. 
But I don't, I don't want you without Jesus talking any closer than this. I've told people, I've told a number of people, I will, I will do my best to be your best friend. I might not be your favorite friend, but I'll be your best friend. Because I'll tell you things you might not want to hear. And I'm open for them telling me the same. But we expect opposition from the world in, in science. So our idea that there's a, a creator that uniquely and purposely, intentionally created this world is at odds with the idea that it's purposeless. It's, there's no direction. It's not going anywhere. It just is. Ethically, our ideas of marriage and our ideas of the sanctity of human life are at odds with the current talking points. Don't give those up. Stand strong. The waves might get higher. But Jesus is still the God of the storm. And in his time, he'll calm that storm. Trust him when he, before he has. As we like to say, trust him in the waiting. He's doing something in you and through you in the waiting he couldn't accomplish with calm seas. So be okay with those rough waters. And we're caught off guard, aren't we? We're caught off guard when we see somebody like, oh, is teaching something inside the church they shouldn't be or, or is, is being led astray and they shouldn't be. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, Paul, in the book of Acts, in chapter 20, said, uh, hey, look, when I leave here, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. The Ephesian leader said, when I leave here, the savage wolves are going to come and fill the, and occupy the void that I leave. Don't be surprised by it. But we don't like that they dress up in sheep's clothing, but we need to be discerning. Now, how do you be discerning? You know this book. If it doesn't comport with, it doesn't compute with God's revealed word, it's probably not of God. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that God can get, cannot give you a special revelation about something that isn't in black and white in this book. I'm saying that it won't contradict this book. It won't. And, and so if you've got a word, if you've got a thought, if you've got some sort of uh, inclination that God is doing that for you, and you just got to tear a page out your Bible, it's, it's not God you're listening to. So we had Acts chapter 20. Savage wolves are going to come, verses 29 and 30. And we also have the book of Jude. I alluded to this a week or two ago. Uh, but in Jude it says this, in verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that's what I wanted to write to you about. I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend. Do we have any wrestlers or former wrestlers in the room? It means to wrestle with or to contend for something. It's worth fighting for. It's, it's worth sweating. It's worth bleeding. It's worth straining for. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't change. For certain people, verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Get away from it. If that's something you're flirting with, get away from it. If that's something you see somebody else playing with, tell them to get away from it. It's not going to help them in the long run. Even if you're worried about them getting mad at you in the short term. So how do we get, how do we get here? How does the church get to this place? There's a few things that I, I, I thought through. Um, and I'm going to get a few quotes on, uh, on the screen here for you. The first thing, the uh, first reason you find yourself in compromise is 
Just plain ignorance. Again, I keep coming back to this. Know this book, know this book, know this book, and you'll not be ignorant of what it says. This from the 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle. Ignorance of Scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. To be allowed to remove a few grains of ignorance and to throw a few rays of light on God's precious word is, in my opinion, the greatest honor that can be put on a Christian, to know what God's word says and to be able to remove error by error by error by shedding God's light on what he says in his word. Uh, It's a tremendous responsibility And James says, not many of you should be teachers because it's a difficult, and the teacher is going to be judged with even more severity. I come to that knowledge, and I come to that reality with a bit of fear and trepidation. Because at the end of my life, if if I've preached for 50 years or 60 years, I would have delivered thousands of sermons. And each one of them an opportunity to have taught you error. If it wasn't on my game. And trusting the Spirit to provide to me what I needed to tell you. But we got to know this book first. And so ignorance sometimes gets in the way of that. Now sometimes we want to be open-minded, right? We want to be relevant to people. Who doesn't want to be relevant? I do. I want to be relevant. I don't, I don't want somebody to say, hey, you know, the, uh, the Amish group called. They'll take you back now. I actually have a great deal of respect for the Amish people. I think they got so much figured out, the way that they work in community, the way that they love each other and, and take care of their own, that we can learn a lot from. But the other thing that we have is we have an open-mindedness because we want to be relevant. So this next quote speaks to open-mindedness. And I don't know who to attribute this to. I found about 20 different authors that were all given credit for this. Uh, do not be so open-minded that your brain falls out. You've heard the cousin of this, stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You need to know what you believe is true. I have been uh, talking to a young man who is in pursuit of truth. And I believe he's earnest in his pursuit. I believe he wants to know the truth. But his mind is open to just about everything. And it has to be at first. Because pursuit of truth allows everything. But, but as you find truth, you latch on to it. Let's get this next quote up. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, he's actually a, a Catholic uh, uh, guy, but he, he uh, a lot of good books. He wrote a book uh, called uh, Orthodoxy, which convinced C.S. Lewis uh, to be a Christian. But he says, I open my intellect as I open my mouth in order to shut it again on something solid. You don't just ever and ever wider open your mouth when you're eating. You, you find what you're looking for, you clamp down on it, you hold on tight. Right? So the process of finding truth and finding knowledge is just like that. You're open-minded to the point of being uh, able to accept that which you didn't already know into your mind, but also with the filter in place so it's blocking those things that shouldn't get in. Right? And again, we come back to having to know your Bible in order to get that done. So I understand open-mindedness. I understand wanting to be relevant to the culture. But trust me, you can't paint Jesus better than he already is in his truest and fullest expression even when that's hard to hear. You don't make Jesus look any better than he already does. The third thing is this, and more dangerous than the first two. Ignorance is dangerous, and open-mindedness can be dangerous. But this is by far uh, the worst of the three, and that is willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. I'm not even concerned about the truth. I I have my opinion. That's all I need. Get away from me with the facts. I'm not worried about that. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not even looking. Don't come, don't come knocking. I'm not looking for that. Willful ignorance. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, it says this. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. People are unwilling. Having eyes they don't see, having ears they don't hear. They willfully block that out. They willfully choose to bury their head instead in the sand, and not acknowledge Jesus for who he is. And that, I hope, adequately sets up the text for us today. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This will finish up chapter 2 for us. It opens up very similar to other letters to the churches. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished Somebody want to help me out with that? Praise God that it's okay to say I don't know. Right? You know that it's okay to say I don't know? Who, who here? I'm going to show hands for this. Uh, who here has avoided conversations with people because you are scared to death that it might take a turn down an avenue you're not prepared to answer? I've been there. I still get there sometimes. And, and so you don't open your mouth. Do you know that it's a perfectly acceptable and even Christian to say, I don't know, but I'll help you find the answer, as I do too. And that will, you, that will endear you to the person that you are talking to. Say, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But the answers I do have, I'll give to you. And those that I don't have, I'll walk that journey with you to help you find them. And you just made a lifelong friend, perhaps, too, at in the, in the same time. So it's okay, and I praise God for that. It's okay to say, I don't know. I try to say it very little. But I still find myself saying it all the time. But we do have an idea. This was a, a description of the risen Jesus that we find in actually Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. So it's, it's actually not new, even in this book. And even that vision comes from Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6. If you, if you have that, if you open to that, I'm not going to ask you to uh, for the sake of time. Uh, but if you turn to Daniel chapter 10, you'd see it headed something like this. A terrifying vision of a man. Why? Because if you saw somebody that looks the way that that vision describes the future pre-incarnate Christ, it would be terrifying. And I imagine, I can't, I can't picture a meeting with Jesus where I'm not terrified. My knees aren't shaken. Uh, again, I don't want to make fun of this song, but I can only imagine. That song says, I, I can only imagine what I'm going to do. It's like, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to fall flat on my face. Because that's the only proper response that I can think to muster. That in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all I can do is get down as low as I can, as fast as I can. In his presence. This terrifying vision of a man, the son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's important, he, he says that he's the son of God. I've said to you in previous letters, that his description of the risen, uh, risen uh, Christ in each of these letters matters to the specific situation at hand. In this place, there was not uh, so much emperor worship, but there was this guy by the name of Apollo. And who was Apollo, you might ask? Go ahead and ask me. All right, who was Apollo? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Apollo was the son of Zeus. Lowercase g, God. The fraud. The son of fraud. Jesus shares glory with no one. Not you, not me. And certainly not some made-up mythology guy called Apollo. 
But in this culture, he's coming to a church that's familiar with Apollo, son of Zeus, son of God, vying in competition for the glory that is only God the Father's. He says, I don't think so. I'm the son of God. And I'm here to take back what you've taken from me. And that is the glory that belongs only to the risen Christ. And I'm sorry to get so passionate about this. But we can't properly come to him if we don't properly see him for who he is and where he is. Higher than, greater than, bigger than, more important than. He must increase, we must decrease. And we can't get small enough. It's a privilege to to be able to do the work of the kingdom. I hope you see it as that. God didn't have to design a system where he used these peons that constantly make, you know, mess things up, constantly getting in fights with people, constantly spreading gossip and rumors and, and lies about each other, then coming to church on Sunday and acting all Christian and polished and sinless. But it pleased him to use us anyway. And so we just need to, we just need to do our due diligence and realize what that makes us. Privileged. Not good. I'm not trying to bash you. I'm just, I want us to see Jesus. If I can, man, if I could paint that picture for you, who Jesus is, I've done my job. And we can leave it at that because you'll be pursuing that image the rest of your life. The Son of God, eyes like a flame of fire and feet are like burnished bronze. This flame of fire, it's blazing anger against sin and the penetration of a gaze that strips away any disguise that we might put up. It's why I try to be so transparent with you, so honest with you, because I, I see myself from the worst part of my week. That's who I was. The, that's who I am. And I want to hide that from you. We all have pasts. We all have skeletons in the closet. I'd rather open my closet and say, just take a look. Jesus forgave me of all of that. If you haven't allowed Jesus to do that for you, be an opportunity at the end of the service to do just that and I hope that you will. His gaze penetrates and strips away the disguise we might try to hide behind. And this idea of burnished bronze, again, no wasted language here. This burnished bronze speaks to the trade guild of the bronze smelters in this community. And who is their patron god? Apollo. And the risen Christ comes to Thyatira and he says, Hey, Apollo, you fraud. You phony, you fake. You've taken something that belongs to only me and I've come here to take it back. And that is the glory of the risen Christ. So he speaks piercingly to the specific situation of Thyatira. And he carries on, I know your works. I see what you're going on. I see your situation. I know what's going on. Your love and your faith, your service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. Love and faith. Unlike Ephesus, they were doing some things right, but they maintained their love for God and their love for others. To some degree, they maintained their faith. Enough that it could be listed here. And perhaps these first two things motivated the next pair of positive attributes. Your service and your patient endurance. We've talked a whole lot about perseverance and patient endurance, so I want to focus on that service part. Uh, if love for God necessarily means that it'll translate into love for others, and I believe that it will, true love for God will and cannot help but translating into love for other people. So, just the same way, 
Service to God is service to other people. We serve God by serving other people. Now, please don't ever get the idea that you're in a position in church where you can't wash somebody's feet or hold the door or fold the bulletin. Thankfully, we don't have those things, bulletins. I was just talking to, to Jill the other day about how those of us that stand on the stage need to find ways to get low. Because there's, there's a sense in which it's easier for us to get big-headed. I teach every week. I sing every week. If you sound like Jill, you probably have a big head too. Chris, you make her... Where's Chris at? Okay. Does he make you sing him to sleep each night or no? He should. Starting tonight he does, I bet. But it's easy. When you're, when you're in front of people all the time, it's easy to get a swelled head. So we have to look for ways to serve each other so we can re- remember who we are and that we're... Nothing greater than, nothing bigger than. Again, he must increase, we must decrease. So service to others, and I am thankful. I I love being the pastor of this church. It is worth every minute uh, of brain-wrenching study, especially in the, why did I pick Revelation? What was I thinking? It's worth every minute of that, because I get to come here, and I get to watch you all love on each other and serve each other. Somebody's sick, bam, there's 15. It's not a matter of, are we getting a meal? It's, it's, can I eat all the food that's been provided to me before it spoils? The way you put together a, a, a memorial service for somebody who wasn't even part of this church. A dozen people knocking each other over to help out. Your service to these other people is your service to God. What a beautiful beautiful thing to pastor a church of people like that. Don't ever quit that. Don't ever stop doing that. Don't lose the love that you had at first. Maintain that. Most recently, and this is the most unique thing I think I've ever been a part of, and I hope uh, I hope that the relevant parties won't mind me sharing the story. I'll keep the names out, but uh, somebody's struggling to sleep at night because a critter's keeping you awake. And who has not experienced a couple restless nights of non-sleep? And it just compounds. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And uh, not all heroes wear capes. Some of them look like Jeremy. And, uh, and tirelessly show up day in, day in and day out until that thing is trapped and taken away. It's unique and it's, 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 only, it's, it's worth smiling about except that it wasn't worth smiling about the person that couldn't sleep at night. And I just, that's the kind of love that you show each other, the kind of service you show to each other. And so I just, wanted to, I just wanted to zoom in on that and say, don't slow down on that. Keep that up. I'm proud of Ignite for all that you do in that regard. It says that the, their latter deeds exceeded their first. The church at Thyatira was on the rise. Things were looking good. Things were going the right direction. Except. But. That's the next word we have. But I have this against you. And it's no small thing. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The threat has moved inside the church. Danger from without is real. Danger from without is to be 
watched for and to be guarded against, but danger from within is even worse. We shared the text in Jude, the text in Acts, and there's uh, the New Testament is replete with examples, but it's why it's so important. You might wonder why we're dragging our feet a little bit and appointing elders. Because it has to be right. You don't just walk in to you, you, and you because I need some help and I'm a tired guy, and that's true. And I can't wait to have, to, to release some of the burden of it. To spread that out a little bit. But you don't, you don't force it because those roles aren't to be handed out to potential Jezebels who are just looking for glory, self-glory. So what's this Jezebel? Who is she? Well, Jezebel of the history, uh, you go to the Old Testament, and we don't have time to read this. Uh, we might have time to get through this message. But First Kings chapter 16 through 22. I'm just kidding. We're getting through the message. Nobody's leaving until I'm done. Um, <laughs> but she was the Phoenician wife of King Ahab. Uh, and she was instrumental in leading them astray into Baal worship and sorcery. So getting them to compromise with idolatry, they were, they were so always tempted to do anyway, and, and, and fall to this Baal worship. The Jezebel of Thyatira in the First Testament, we don't, or the New Testament, we don't know if uh, this is a literal Jezebel, really her name, or just representative of the Old Testament Jezebel uh, for whom she represents. But similarly, she taught those that she had influence over to compromise, to take part in pagan events, to take part in pagan practices, to take part in pagan rituals. Those events and practices and rituals certainly culminating in such identification with the pagan world that their identity in Christ was so far beyond identifiable. They had blotted out any image of Christ left on them. They so identified with these trade guilds and the, and the, the immorality that went along with them. One commentator said at these, where these events took place for these pagan shrines and pagan temples, he says, almost literally, if you wanted to find a prostitute, the precincts of a pagan temple would be the natural place to look. These are the, this is the religion of the day. The religion that's flirting with Christianity, a brand new baby, infant Christianity, and they're giving into it. And you know that incorrect beliefs lead to incorrect or immoral actions? That's why we, we need to constantly be working at getting correct beliefs. Because the incorrect beliefs will lead us astray into places we don't need to be. So again, you can't get a, a, a bad map or map to a wrong destination and, and, and still assume you're going to find where you're going. Anybody ever been burned by Google Maps? A couple, two, three times? Yeah. Stop in the middle of the street and get out because it told you to. Well, Google said, and if you watch The Office at all, show of hands. Okay, I'm not the only guilty one. All right. Well, Michael Scott drives his car straight into a lake because it said turn right. It says turn right, Dwight. I'm turning right. Right into a lake. But right thinking leads to right action. Wrong thinking leads to wrong action. All right? So it has practical uh, outcroppings of what we believe which, when it's wrong. And so we have to, we have to uh, pull together correct beliefs. The ever-long-suffering God says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, 
I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I don't make the assumption that anybody here is dabbling in anything akin to what Jezebel brought to the church. But I would caution to search your life high and low to make sure that that's not the case. And if it is to repent of it, repentance this is a fancy uh, theological word. It just means change your mind, change your action. Once you've been shown the light, once you've been shown the truth, it says, okay, you get, you, I've reckoned with the truth now. Now my responsibility is to do something about it. So I change my mind, I change my action, and I go a different direction. How's that right face? All right. Fellow military guys in the room. He gave her time to repent, but she refused. And now he's saying, the punishment of her is going to be yours if you don't repent as well. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. I'm not going to attempt to unpack all this. We're running out of time already, but I'll leave it at this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. I love the analogy of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I absolutely love the picture of Christ you see in the lion, Aslan. If you're not familiar with that storyline, you could read the books or watch the movie, but um, it's asked of Aslan, who's, a, who's a, again, a, a type of Christ in the book. And this is a mythology, but it's meant to parallel Christianity quite closely. And, and one of the characters asks somebody who knows Aslan very well, they say, uh, well, is he safe? Is Aslan the lion safe? To which the person responds and and laughs a little bit. Of course, he's a lion. Of course, he isn't safe. But he's good. He's a king, I tell you. And and that's a picture of who Jesus is. He's not to be trifled with, uh, the judge of all the earth. He's not safe. He's not to be trifled with, but he is good, and he is the king. So the guilt was greater here than in Pergamum, and therefore so were the consequences. In Pergamum, Pergamum, those that influenced the church would be warred against. Remember that? I said, uh, as parents, we understand this because we say, yeah, I'm I'm mad when my kid messes up. I'm mad when they dabble in in drugs or alcohol. I'm mad when they get off track, but I'm even more mad at the person that led them astray. Let me get my hands on that person that brought my kid into all that garbage. I'm forgiving my kid, but I'm going to punch in the mouth the person that brought them into that. Sometimes literally, right? Sometimes literally. But in Thyatira, those that participated suffered as well. Of course, not everyone was guilty, verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I can. That's why I said, I start off saying, stand strong. Stand your ground. Don't move. Don't be moved off the X we talked about in Galatians. You know where the X is. God has shown you the X. Jesus saved you on the X. Don't move from that X. And the risen Christ says the same to Thyatira. Those that were not guilty, hold fast what you have until I come. I know that not all of you have given in. But others have taken Christian liberty as license. To explore all kinds of things that aren't helpful. So maybe, maybe all things are permissible. What did Paul say? Even if all things are permissible, not all things are profitable or helpful or good for you. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. And there's some people that were 
exploring the deep things of Satan. So they've taken this liberty as a license. But what does Romans say? Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 19 says, Be wise about what is good, simple concerning evil. You be an expert in what is right, and you'll recognize fiction for what it is. Be an expert in what is true, and you'll recognize the counterfeit immediately. Be an expert in this book. And dig into this book. I love so many of you chiming in with the comments section of our reading plan together. Uh, I love that. And, and those of you that have a, a bigger, a longer background and experience with the uh, Word of God are, are chiming in and helping those that don't to understand what they're reading. It's awesome. It's a, even, we, we meet on Sundays, but we're talking all throughout the week, which I think is incredible. He finishes up, verse 26, to the one who conquers. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, as even I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The churches. Jesus is establishing a royal priesthood. You get to be a part of that. You get to reign with the risen Christ. As a part of his glory and his what he has done, he's invited you into that. The, the king who came to serve and not be served is inviting you to reign with him. Is that not a name worthy of being praised? He's establishing this priesthood so you can reign with him. So the stakes are very high. If you've not yet done anything with the name and the person of Jesus, I, I, I challenge you to not leave here today before you've talked to myself or somebody else about what that means to you and what, what it should mean to you. But what's the rub? How does this improve our vision? How does this improve our vision? I want to tell you, Jezebel is alive and well today. Is she not? She's standing outside the doors. And there may, even more frighteningly, be one in here. I'm not even attempting to, to, to say that there is, but there, it's possible. We have to be on guard against those things. And so we look at a church like Thyatira, we want to learn from their example, their love, their faith, their servants, their uh, service and patient endurance. But be on guard where they let theirs down. Again, don't fall in the same hole. Experience that hole vicariously. Somebody else fell into it, you know it's there. Avoid it. Again, we expect false prophets to insist, or I'm sorry, we expect the culture to insist on our compromise, but also expect false prophets to insist on our compromise. Modern day progressives in the church, we're always looking to change this because it's not palatable. It's archaic, it's arcane, it's old, it's dirty, it's, it's, uh, it's had its time, and it's, its time is over. Which are all lies. The risen Christ of this word, the Logos, is still on the throne. And he's still endorsing this book. And the risen Christ has my vote. He should have yours too. So yes, the church in Thyatira was guilty of compromise. Yes, the church in Thyatira was guilty of letting a false teacher have influence and authority. Yes, the church at Thyatira was confused in their involvement in pagan deities and false deities. And yes, the church at Thyatira was violating their consciences and eating food offered to idols. And yes, all of this led to the sexual immorality and prostitution in the church. 
But all those things, I don't think any of those things is actually the big mistake they made. Now you're saying, well, what the heck? What was the big mistake they made? I'll wait for you to ask me. What was the big mistake they made? I think those are symptoms of the problem. The big mistake that they made is that their trust was in their guilds rather than their God. The trust that they placed was in the guilds to be able to to feed them and take care of them and comfort them and keep them okay in their area. Not in the God who promised to keep them okay in that area. To trust their own networks and ability to appease their way into their daily bread. It was a real thing. If they're not going along to get along, they're out of the guild, and all of a sudden my shop doesn't have any patrons. Nobody's buying my product. The question for us is, what are you trusting today rather than the promises of God? Your own ability, your strength, your endurance, all that could be gone in a heartbeat, a literal heartbeat. What is your safety net? What is your guild that is leading you into guilt because you're not trusting the promises that God put on your life? Maybe it's the job that you have. Maybe it's the comfort that you find in the six-figure income that you bring home. Maybe that's the reality for you. That's the thing. I take all my comfort in that thing over there. And so I'm not really truly trusting that. I'm trusting in that. And then God's just kind of an add-on, sprinkles on the cake. Maybe it's your ability to play both sides. You walk out of here, you're like, man, I had them so fooled. They believed everything I said about Jesus in there. And then I'm going to go to my workplace. I'm going to go to my school. I'm going to go to whatever place I go and live just like everyone else lives there. A chameleon operating as fluently in any environment as the other. We have an H word for that. Hypocrisy. Nobody wants to be called that, but that's what that is. Pretending to be something. I want to speak a minute to those of our online audience, those who only are partaking with our live feed. I'm I'm grateful for our live feed. I'm grateful that people can see it when they're sick or they're not able to be here. I'm grateful for it. But it does not replace the authority of the church in your life. It does not replace coming in these doors and being loved by all these people. So, So yeah, you've been hurt by a church. Who hasn't? And I confess to you, I don't know why we do it so fluently. I don't know why we do it so easily, so quickly. That we're supposed to be a sanctuary for hurt people. And instead, we we, we bring them in and, and the first thing we do is punch them in the forehead. I heard a scholar say that the, uh, the, the, the Christian army is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. What, what a sad commentary for the world out there that we want to say, hey, come in here, the water is fine. Maybe your refusal to be a part of what God is doing here is because you're afraid of getting hurt. Afraid of being let down. Well, that's, that's the price of admission into this thing called kingdom. That occasionally you will be hurt. You will be let down. But we don't trust in ourselves. Where's your trust? Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. All your trust. All of it. Put it in him. You don't need a stinking guild. You don't need a guild. You've got a God. 
You've got the God of angel armies on your side. You don't need a safety net. You are safe in the arms of Jesus, the risen Christ, the one with the flaming uh, eyes of fire, the burnished bronze feet, and a sword, two-edged sword coming out from his mouth. You don't need a safety net when you have an ally like the risen Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and close us out. I know this has been a longer message, and I, I didn't want to not do justice to the text here. But now I want to depart from that, and I want to just speak to two groups of people. First, I want to speak to the unsaved, those that don't know Jesus as what we call Lord and Savior. We call him Lord and Savior not just because he's saved us from hell. It's not a fire insurance policy. I will never communicate the gospel to you like that. It's not about getting out of hell. It's about serving Jesus who is worthy of being served simply for who he is. And if you haven't done that, look, the stakes are high. Yes, eternity does hang in the balance. Yes, the idea of hell does hang in the balance. And and those are odds I wouldn't want to flirt with. Look, I believe with everything in my being that Jesus predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. He was the first fruits of what we will experience in life after death. I believe that with all my heart. And if you don't, let me talk to you. Let me communicate why I believe it. There's good reasons to believe that, even historical and scientific reasons to believe that. Those Christians who have wandered, maybe watching online and and staying away, staying at arm's distance, compromised, seeking refuge outside of God, outside of the church. Come back. I understand that you've been hurt. Come back. I understand that you may be guilty of doing the hurting. Come back. Afraid of losing your livelihood because you're following Jesus. Come back. Flirting with compromise in your beliefs. Come back. Failing to trust God instead leaning on your own understanding, your own abilities, your own guilt. Come back. Over and over and over again there is forgiveness, there is grace sufficient for you to come back. And we want you to come back. If any part of this spoke to you, I'm going to give you an opportunity while the worship team plays and sings. I'm going to be up front. I'm going to ask uh, Rick and Peggy if you'd come forward to help me out with this. And Ed, if you wouldn't mind uh, joining me as well. If you're one of those two camps of people, you are either somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is and you you hear people talk about this relationship, you're like, what is that even about? If you don't know, let us tell you about that. You can pray this morning. You can pray right now. You can start that journey of following Christ right now today. Today is this acceptable day of salvation. Today is the day. Now is the hour. And if you've been wandering, if you've been meandering, you've been finding all sorts of comfort and other things outside the church, outside his truth, I'm going to invite you to come up. And you can come talk to whoever you're comfortable talking with. We'll be available to you. I hope that you will. Because getting right with Jesus is the only, if you're not right with Jesus, it's the only thing right now at this moment that matters. 
And I mean that literally. So we'll be available to you. Let me close in a word of prayer and then we'll invite the worship team to close us out. Lord and Father, we we love you. We we want to pursue you. We want to do what what we're doing is we want to be rightly termed pursuing you. Even if it looks crazy to a world outside these walls, even if it looks crazy to people inside these walls, that we become more undignified than this in following you. Lord, give us a passion and a zeal for you. And Lord, bring those to us that need some healing, that need some prayer, that need to reconnect with you, or maybe connect for the first time. Thank you for making that available to us, forgiveness and grace, no matter how bad we get, no matter how far we wander off, forgiveness and grace always available to us. Where sin did abound, grace did that much more abound. Thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus.